Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL Hour. Uh, my name is Taryn Sharma. I'm joined, as always, by Mike Lawson. How's it going, Mike? Taryn, back, and uh, a lot happening in college sports, so it's a prime NIL hour right now. That's right. And also joined by Holly Summers. How's it going, Holly? It's good, Taryn. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And we are very lucky, as always, to have one of our favorite guests back, Amanda Kristovich from Front Office Sports. How's it going, Amanda? It's going well. I'm surprised you're not sick of me yet. No, not at all. In fact, you've been all over these stories. So there's really only one person to call when we want to talk about these. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. <laughs> so we've got kind of a grab bag episode, a bunch of stories that you've been following. Again, we're going to talk a little Dartmouth men's basketball, a little Washington State and Oregon State teaming up to save the Pac-2, and the first official promotion relegation proposal in college sports. As always, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Amanda, let's start with Dartmouth men's basketball. They file for unionization. Dartmouth opens their season against my Duke Blue Devils in 46 days. What's the timeline here? Are Is Duke going to be playing against employees of Dartmouth College? Oh man, that's a great question. You know, probably not, but there's always a chance. So the unionization petition was filed last Thursday. By September 25th at noon, the school has to respond about whether or not they intend to recognize the players' union. Um, and if there's a dispute, which I'm assuming there will be, because you know allowing players to unionize would be antithetical to the NCAA's entire model, there will be a hearing starting on October 3rd. Um, and then after that, it's like, you know, the local hearing and then there's a decision and I'm sure either way that decision will be appealed and it could take nine months. Who knows? But technically there's a chance, you know, given that there is an opportunity for a response at some point in the next couple of weeks. Now, this is in some ways similar to Northwestern, but it's it's a very different era that we're in and these are different groups. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what might set this petition apart from what we saw with Kane Coulter and Northwestern football? Yeah. Prefacing this by saying that I was not on this beat at the time that Northwestern was filing the uni for unionization. This is just what I've reported on and gathered, you know, after the fact. But it seems that there are a couple main differences. The first difference is that the Northwestern effort was organized by a college athlete advocacy group run by former UCLA football player Ramogi Huma. Still a big name in the space. Yes, he and he has yet another NLRB case that I'll be covering for which there will be a hearing in November about the mis it's not a union petition, it's misclassification of yeah. athletes as amateurs. The Dartmouth group is being organized by like the service workers union which is a very strong union with chapters all over the country they're the union that helped other dartmouth student workers like i believe the cafeteria workers for example to unionize um so it's interesting that th this is like a bona fide union group that has sort of like taken on the dartmouth players cause rather than an organization that is like specifically for the purpose of college athlete rights in particular. I don't know how much bearing that has on like 
how well the case will fare, but I imagine it's a good thing given that obviously the service workers union is very well equipped to sort of deal through the NLRB, right? And, you know, the other thing I wanted to point out was that it's easier with a basketball team because there are fewer players, so fewer votes are needed. But also the Dartmouth athletes aren't on scholarship, whereas the Northwestern football players mostly were because in the Ivy League, there's no athletic scholarships. And honestly, I think there could be legally a case for or against the athletes unionizing because they don't get scholarships. But I do think that it's an interesting wrinkle and an interesting motivation for these players to want more. Yeah, I, I, I'll i just say, and then I'll, I'll kick it to Mike, there would be a great amount of irony if a school like Dartmouth, which is in the Ivy League, which exists in the form that the NCAA really was advocating for in the 1930s and up through the 1950s with the sanity code saying that they did not want athletic scholarships eventually bringing down the entire guise of, of amateurism. Mike? I think it's interesting. And Amanda, I'd love to get your take on the strategy behind this coming from an Ivy league school. Now Northwestern is as like Ivy league close as you can get, but they're not Ivy league, but now it's, this is truly Ivy league. And I, I see this more of a strategic take by the Ivy league because it's almost as if it's easier for the Ivy league to remove themselves from the NCAA, if you will, by going against the amateurism model, because that's what this would do. This would completely destroy amateurism, even though we saw it get eviscerated in the Austin case anyways. But I think that this is, to me, a more strategic take by the men's basketball program coming out of an Ivy League school. But I don't know what your your thought process is, or if you're hearing anything on the on the other side of it, where it's like, is Dartmouth going to go along with it because Dartmouth is going to stand up for their students to be like, you know, we'll back them and and we'll, you know, shield them and take whatever the NCAA, you know, throws at us. I can't see Dartmouth recognizing the union right off the bat, even if the university itself is cool with it because of the pressure from, I imagine the Ivy league and the NCAA and the powers that be right. Because of the implications beyond Dartmouth. The thing that I'm curious about that unfortunately is more of a question for you guys than an answer because the Dartmouth players have not, they released an op-ed, but they haven't spoken to any reporters yet. And I am in the process of hopefully getting them on the phone. So I don't know this for sure, but it seems to me, particularly because they have the service workers union rather than a college athlete organization behind them, that like, this isn't necessarily like a crusade to change college sports writ large so much as it is the athletes saw what was happening around their own campus with unionization efforts for student workers and realized that they could tap into that for their own sake. Like it's not like Ramogi Huma or Jason Stahl at the College Football Players Association, you know, or other big advocates. As far as I, as far as I know, nobody is the quote unquote usual suspects are not part of this. It it was the players and a service workers union. So I it's like I don't even know if there is a strategy. You know what I mean? 
I think we're going to get to the the proposal that we're you know for for college football and the the relegation of uh, a new this new league, which could lead to potential unionization of those players because they're going to abide by their own rules. It's their own league. They're going to separate. We'll get to that. But I think for this, it's unique to me because. I don't know. I mean, you kind of mentioned it before, too, where there's this delineation between student athletes who have full rides and then the Ivy League schools where, where there's no athletic scholarships like that. I mean, is that going to be the line of demarcation where you're going to have student athletes who are not, you know, the, the non-scholarship athletes are permitted to unionize because they're not getting a full ride or getting scholarship money from the school which then they have different rights than the athletes who are scholarship athletes, which then would essentially be a disincentivization, or I guess it would be the choice of the athlete. Do you want a scholarship or do you want to be a union member? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that's a big question. And again, not one that I know the answer to, but I do, it does remind me of the, the Johnson hearing way back in gosh, March, was it? Where is this decision? Third circuit, where are you? I've been waiting for like six months. Anyway. Third, third circuit, well-known listeners of the NIL hours. <laughs> yeah, like, hello, third circuit. Like, where are you? Like, I, I want this decision. I've been waiting to write about it for months. Anyway, but in this, in that hearing, which was about whether or not Division one athletes are employees under the FLSA, which I know is less strict question mark than the NLRA, but you know, same concept, US labor law, right? The athletes council was trying to argue that the definition of definition of an employee isn't necessarily about how much compensation or benefits they receive, even though that's part of it. It's more about how they're treated. Like, are they treated like employees or not? The control factor. It's the control, the control factor of the individual. Right. So I wonder, and again, I don't know, but like, that's a question that I have at how much of a consideration is that from a unionization perspective? Cause I could definitely see the argument for them becoming employee for all of them to become employees of like it doesn't matter whether or not you're receiving the scholarship because you're all treated the same if that makes sense but then you're talking about consideration for that control piece so for an athlete who has a full ride they don't have any additional expenses like that right the argument would be that they have full compensation they are attending university for free and in return of that exchange that consideration you are now being controlled as a student athlete who has to participate with us for four years. So that's the difference where now these Dartmouth basketball players are not being compensated. Like they have to pay to go to university. I mean, but they might have academic scholarship, but they're paying to attend this university. And then this university is controlling every second of their day. Right. But they get like access to healthcare. They get benefits. So you're saying they do, they do now or they would within the union. No, like I doubt Dartmouth pays as much for healthcare for college athletes as, you know, like a power five program because they would claim they wouldn't have that financial capability or their athletic department wouldn't. But like all college athletes at least are required to have access to a healthcare plan, which technically is a benefit. I guess you could argue that maybe at an Ivy League, it's just a student benefit rather than an athlete benefit, but it is a benefit. I don't know. Just putting it out there. Holly, we have from you on this. Okay. So my main thought that I am on right now that I'm kind of following is because Dartmouth is private, even if 
the school, the university decided to recognize the union, it wouldn't mean anything for public schools. So my question is really like, who should have hope in this situation? Should Dartmouth, the basketball team think, okay, because we are private, if our university recognizes our union, then maybe even though against goes against the NCAA amateur rules, like like it won't mean too much in the grand scheme of things? Or do you think that it really will have a lot of weight for other schools like public schools? Okay, so answer to this question, because it's such a crucial point that you just brought up, which is that a full ruling for Northwestern came out in 2015. The ruling was not that athletes were or weren't employees and therefore able to unionize. The ruling was that the NLRB didn't want to get involved for this exact reason. They didn't want to allow Northwestern athletes to unionize and set a precedent for private schools only and where there's a landscape where it's like, you know, public school athletes can't and private school athletes can. The case that Ramogi Huma is pursuing with the NLRB, which is a misclassification of athletes as amateurs rather than employees. That's his argument. Again, it's not a unionization like petition. They have this like this roundabout way of also charging the PAC-12 and the NCAA as joint employers. So like the case is against USC, but it's like if they can prove that it's against USC and the PAC-12 and the NCAA, because the conferences and the NCAA are private, then all the even the athletes at public schools will be like under the ruling that they decide. Correct. They're joint employers. So th- that was the allegation to the NCAA and PAC-12. Was, they were trying to say that they had no say in what USC and how they control their student athletes within it. But the argument was that, no, you're all joint employers. The NCAA sets the regiment with the NCAA bylaws, PAC-12 sets the conference bylaws, and then the USC, under the, the guidelines of the two above, then they are the ones that are effectively putting the control piece onto it. It's a, it's a great argument. I think that that was one that the NCAA was able to kind of skate away from it, but whether they win or not, we'll see. But that's the argument that the, as a joint employer, that the control piece goes all the way up the chain to the NCAA, and that's where the unionization argument would be. Right. But then bringing it back to Dartmouth, it's like the Dartmouth case is only asking for unionization from Dartmouth. So does that mean they have the same problem as Northwestern to Holly's point? I feel as though the answer to that question is going to be about what happens with Ramogi Humus case. But the other thing that I'll say is politics. And the NLRB is an organization that is run by the presidential administration and the general counsel is appointed with each administration. There's a very liberal on this issue general counsel there right now. There may not be in a year and a half. You know, she's willing to figure that out. Like she's willing to add her sort of like, you know, put her brain to work to figure out a joint employer doctrine, to figure out how Dartmouth ruling could apply to everybody that may not happen in a year and a half, you know, yeah. or wouldn't be possible. Jennifer Abruzza, the uh, the current general counsel for the NLRB. Yeah, she's been very open about how she feels about student athletes. She hates that term employment 
she believes that they are and did that as soon as she came into office, really. So has been very clear on that issue. I think if this is going to happen, like this is kind of the time for it to happen. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't there also a kind of like a twin case with that uh, going after UCLA? Was that thrown out? Yeah. Yeah. So it was like the same case. It was like USC, UCLA, Pac-12, NCAA. The NLRB just threw out UCLA because I think it was too complicated and the joint employer idea would have like covered, would have theoretically would achieve the goal of charging UCLA anyway, I think, you know, so they just, they just threw UCLA out. Is it because of the public private thing? Yeah. So uh, obviously we're going to continue to follow this. There's like a million things that goes into this, but let's transition right now. Another story that you covered and we touched on briefly, the TRO was granted on behalf of Washington State and Oregon State, who are the last members standing of what was the Pac-12, 108-year-old conference that was killed. Can you tell us a little bit more about where that currently stands? What did the TRO prevent? Yeah, so the TRO prevented literally one meeting that Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov wanted to hold with the president of every single university, the entire Pac-12 board. The issue that Oregon State and Washington State took with that was that the whole argument of the lawsuit was stating that the Pac-12 bylaws say that if you're a school that like essentially issues your intent to leave the conference, the second you issue that intent, you're no longer part of the board. And that's how the conference had been operating when USC and UCLA announced they would go to the Big Ten. And when Colorado decided they were going to leave and go to the Big 12. So Oregon State and Washington State were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, if you have this meeting, like all of these departing schools are incentivized to vote to dissolve the conference so that they can get the assets and the revenue that they won't wouldn't receive otherwise we are incentivized not to dissolve the conference because we might want those assets we might want to try to rebuild the conference and oh by the way the fact that now the conference is just controlled by us like you guys should have thought about that before you did what you did yeah so that's what it prevented we are waiting i checked the docket yesterday there's no date set for the preliminary injunction hearing which would decide who gets to vote on the future of the Pac-12 before they theoretically go to trial, which I'd be very surprised if they did. But that's where we're at now. Literally not even a date set, which is weird because this court like heard the TRO so quickly. Like literally it was filed on a Friday afternoon and the hearing was on a Monday afternoon. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because the meeting was going to happen imminently. There was... Right, right. The meeting was supposed to be the what do you think is likely to happen here? I know that we're speculating a little bit, but you have the Mountain West Conference schools that have discussed maybe joining up and taking the Pac-12 IP. Do you see that as a, a viable path forward? I definitely see it as a viable path forward and one that I know for a fact is being explored. However, it seems that Oregon State and Washington State want to try to rebuild the existing Pac-12 first. And that's what their presidents have said publicly. Like that's their number one goal. 
that's part of the reason why they're trying to figure out who has control of the Pac-12 assets and revenue that is incoming to the conference in the future. They want to try to find schools to rebuild. They need at least eight members total to maintain their status as an FBS conference. I think joining the Mountain West and potentially bringing the Pac-12 IP with them, though, makes the most sense and is the most like plausible. But if they don't want to do it, you know, it's like the Mountain West wants them for sure. But do they want to join the Mountain West? Remains to be seen. And how long do they have to rebuild to eight? Yeah. They have a two-year grace period. So they could just play Pac-2 football next year. <laughs> Like they could, but that would not be possible because you have an entire conference schedule that then would just be one other team. So they would literally have to operate as if they were independents. Like they would have to operate like Notre Dame does where they'd have to go and they'd have to build an entire schedule from, from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if that is viable for those schools. They're well-regarded schools, definitely out West. I know a lot of Cougs fans that are very passionate about their program and they've had success. They were in a national championship game, but I don't think that they necessarily have the brand power like a Notre Dame to kind of survive an independent struggle. So all of that kind of feeds into this proposal, which you broke this story like right before you joined us tonight. Um, <laughs> promotion and relegation, which is something that We've definitely mentioned on this show as a future possibility. I think it's definitely interesting for any of us who follow European soccer. It's very exciting. The most exciting games are the ones that define promotion. That's like the most valuable game in English soccer because it's the difference of like $100 million, whether you go up or go down. And then uh, and relegation because you just don't want to be in that zone like Everton celebrated like they had won the entire Premier League last year when they avoided relegation. So can you tell us a little bit about this proposal? Who proposed it and how is it being received so far? Yeah, so Boise State Associate Athletic Director Mike Walsh, who wears many hats in that department. I know him originally through his director of NIL hat, but he also works on scheduling and just like strategic, you know, I don't know, like strategery of the future of the athletic department. And so he had been kicking around this promotion relegation idea as well. And he decided to write like a formal proposal. It's a 22 slide PowerPoint that he shared with me and we spoke about. It's been shared with athletic directors in and out of the conference. And yesterday was shared with Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West commissioner. You know, so it has the blessing of the Boise State athletic director but, you know, it hasn't been like formally voted on. The idea is taking schools from multiple conferences that are in, you know, mostly group of five, also Pac-12 leftovers, obviously, in the Pacific Mountain and Central time zones and creating a, like a 24-team alliance for football only, where there would be three tiers you know, there's promotion and relegation, but, you know, between those three tiers, there's performance bonuses, there's baseline revenue distribution based on where you are in that structure. The top tier would hopefully, he said, be considered a power league, but, you know, that's not up to them. It's up to the NCAA and the CFP. And then all the other sports would just sort of remain in their current structure. 
So this wouldn't necessarily be creating a new conference or like creating a mega conference. It would only be a mega conference for football. And even then, again, it would be split into three leagues. The Olympic sports athletes would likely like mostly be left alone so that they could continue with their regionality and then continue with the benefits of the automatic qualifiers that their sports get in the NCAA. So like the SEC would still play football as the SEC. The Big Ten would still be the Big Ten. So yeah, let me just clarify. He has a list and it's mostly group of five and then the two Pac-12 leftovers. Like the power four are what they are, right? Like they're there and we are setting them aside in this proposal. It's not for the entirety of college football. It's for ironically the second tier of college Mm -hmm. football in that is still part of the FBS that needs to figure out how they are going to create lucrative media packages and stability and be relevant in any way, shape or form, you know, when they're sitting next to these gargantuan power conferences that are now at 16 to 18 team leagues. So it's the leftovers, Nevada and Boise state and Oregon state would be competing to be in this top division and maybe get one of a couple of spots in the college football playoff and you know, they get to play Alabama or whatever. Right. Like CFP invitations would have to be decided by the CFP, right? Based on the structure. But it's like Pac-12 leftovers, Mountain West, AAC, Conference USA, WAC. So like the teams in those leagues that are in the Pacific Central Mountain time zones are the ones that he was thinking would fit into this proposal. So I remember I've, we've seen so many different things about like conference realignment. And like, I even saw like a creating like a East, West, North and Central or something like that. Like I've saw like a a power for conference realignment, but that's all under the guise of like FBS and like recreating like college football. So this is just like Terrence said, the leftovers, they're, they're playing like within their conference, but then they would have a separate playoff system. No, like the idea would be that they would play in these 18 leagues as their conference and they would part of their quote unquote non-conference play would be like the inter-tier play. So they'd be playing more games in a season. No, like not based, like it's like he had a schedule, he created a schedule that is like in this PowerPoint that would essentially say like week one week two week three it wouldn't be more games because it's three eight team leagues so So it's like 10 to 13 games just like how it normally is and your non-conference schedule would be the second tier or the third tier yeah or other non-conference but i think part of the fun of this would be like the inter-tier games yeah i don't know i think that would be fun for but yeah (laughs) yeah this is awesome you referenced that they were targeting some some certain partners for for TV deals and things like that. Did they give any indication that those partners would go for it, or that's just who they're looking to target? Because right, obviously Fox, ESPN, CBS, those are pretty tied up with the TV deals they already have. But I think NBC is a good one. Uh, Apple is probably a good one. Amazon, Apple, and Amazon are both trying to get into like professional sports and having stake in the game there too. So like, are they like pretty confident that they could get some sort of deal there? Obviously this would kind of all fall to the wayside if none of these games would be televised. Yeah. I mean, those three partners were like the logical first targets. I haven't checked in with them. I don't believe that 
they were put in the proposal on the basis that they had already expressed interest. I like I don't think that's the case at all. Like you said, they are logical first targets. But the question of what media partner is going to be a target is a question of what ultimately the product looks like and what teams are involved and what the schedule would look like. So I think they would need to determine who would be a participant before it would be easy to say like who might be interested. So say, say this proposal takes off and, and it's, it's pretty viable. They have everything placed in. If we're, I'm going a little bit backwards here, do you think Washington state and Oregon state kind of say, you know, I'm out for, for PAC 12 and just kind of give in and then say, we're, we're going to go into this new proposal and we're done with the PAC 12 and PAC 12 just ceases to exist. I mean, it could go either way. The proposal works if the PAC 12 can rebuild, you know, because then it's like PAC 12, some AAC, some Mountain West. It also theoretically could work if they can't rebuild. So, I mean, originally, like this PowerPoint was like written before Stanford and Cal like went to the ACC, but it works either way, in my opinion. I think it's a super interesting concept, especially the idea that the Olympic sports can still stay within their region and not have to travel cross country. That's something that we talked about when we first talked about the realignment, how that was really going to affect the students. Do you think that the proposal was really like, here's what's best for students? Or do you think it was more like, here's what's best for schools and conferences going forward? Good question. Oh, yeah, I think it's what's best for everybody. And like, I talked with Mike about this and he basically, he's like trying to think big, you know, and it's, he's not the only one. Mountain West Commissioner Gloria Navarez told me that this is the first like written down, like someone put pen to paper and was like, this is what this idea would look like. But it's not like he's the only person talking about this. There are plenty of people in the conference across um, the athletics landscape, even you guys, right, have talked about this concept just like in general. His idea was like, as an inflection point, this is an opportunity for us to be like, what do we want college sports to look like in 10 years that benefits everybody? Like what do, in 10 years, what are we going to wish we had done? I'm going to suggest that we do that now. Yeah. You put some great one-liners from Walsh in there that I thought were great. Like it's time to do the right thing. Think differently. Consider what the next generation will wish we would have done rather than putting a bandaid on it. I love that. And then I also love the, like, want to sit at the kids table or you want to yeah. eat somewhere completely different. I love that. He literally like wrote that in the power, like the, that was literally like one of the bullet points. It's compelling. <laughs> I was like, yeah, like I would certainly rather just go to a different restaurant. Yeah, like totally. I personally would love to see the idea of like the European soccer leagues with the tier ones and the tier twos, like, tier one bottom would go to tier two and tier two top would go to tier one. I would love to see that in college sports. I think it would be so fun. And I would love just like the competitive edge that it would really just give everything. Right. Yeah. I think it's great. I think that it's such a cool idea, right? Like one of the great things about the premier league is Luton township, which has a very, very small stadium that is in the middle of a neighborhood is going to be playing in the Premier League. That means that Liverpool is going to go play 
at Luton. Like I, I think that the idea of of San Jose State hosting, you know, one of these top tier programs for an, an important game where if these teams are good enough, they could even get into maybe the college football playoff. I just think it's such a cool idea and it's such a, a neat idea that is just, it's so different from what we've been hearing. And, and I think that these games will be super compelling. And I will say that even the biggest issue that everyone's pointing to with this, which is like revenue distribution, like how do these athletic departments you know, plan in advance if they're going to lose or gain significant revenue. Like the proposal doesn't have like a huge discrepancy. You know, it's like, obviously there, there are performance incentives, but it's not like there's like a $50 million difference year to year. It's like a few million for your bonuses, right? So it's not like everything's going to tier one and nothing is going to tier three. It's, it's more of, it's an incentive thing. It's, it's a bragging rights thing and it's a way to keep group of five football, like compelling thing rather than like, you know what I mean? Cause I did see some people being concerned about that and that's an issue that's always brought up with this. So I wanted to point that out. Yeah. Uh, that's a great point. And, and uh, I hope that this picks up traction. It would just be really cool to see. So uh, we were going to end there, Amanda, but because you're our favorite recurring guest, we're going to have one more topic. It's going to okay. be a choose your own adventure. Okay. Oh, God. Would you rather talk about Dion, Colorado, Colorado state, the, the viewership numbers? Cause I know that you wrote about that and how all the networks are acting in relation to this circus, or would you rather talk about Lincoln Riley having maybe the thinnest skin on the planet? Do you want like, well, let's talk about Lincoln Riley. Let's talk about him. All right. So a reporter from Southern California News Group was suspended, not allowed to go to uh, USC and cover them. And mind you, he's on the beat. This is Luca Evans, who is a young reporter. And I just want to read this because I think if people hear that, they're like, oh, he must have disclosed something that was really bad. That's what he was suspended for, violating the media policy at USC. And so if you hear that, you're like, wow, like he definitely published personal information. Here it is. Before his first practice in front of the dreaded USC practice field media backdrop, freshman running back Quinton Joyner waited off to the side, quietly consulting Braylon Shelby for advice. Shelby himself was a freshman and had spoken to the media all of one time in his USC career. But he was there waiting after Wednesday's practice to take questions too. So he suddenly became a six foot five, 245 pound confidant. Did they tell you what to say? Shelby asked a visibly nervous joiner. Just talk about the team, Shelby told him, offering some words of encouragement. About a half hour later, when told via phone call of the observed exchange, joiner's father, Quincy, cackled. That sounds just like him, Quincy said, in between bouts of laughter. That's what he does. He's a smart kid, but it just seems like he doesn't want to mess up or anything. Now, I get that Luca Evans committed the mortal sin of revealing that players have personalities. <laughs> but I, I mean, you're in this line of work. You're you're involved with a lot of these types of people. What was your reaction when you saw this? Well, my reaction when I found out what he was banned for, like my reaction to any any reporter being banned from anywhere is frankly, like, I'm sorry, Lark, like, are we in like a totalitarian dictatorship? Like, I know a lot of like college football programs operate that way. 
but I was literally just like, you know, there it's like, what could you possibly do that? That would be, it, it's just not a good look. And then you just read the, the article. It's like, then when I found out that he was, he was suspended for disclosing a private conversation before the press conference that, Oh, by the way, the players had right in front of the media. <laughs> okay. And wasn't it like, it wasn't like he was talking about, you know, his deep, dark secrets. He was talking about what he was going to say, which then he eventually said. And then, oh, by the way, they called his dad and his dad wasn't like, oh, I can't believe like you can't print that. That's pride. The dad was like, haha, yeah, that's him. Like, you know, like it wasn't it was a good it was a feel good story. It was there was nothing negative that could have come for this player from that story. OK, I'm sorry. Other than a couple you know, guys in the locker room maybe being like, yeah, dude, next time, like, don't whisper next to reporters. Like, I'm sorry, I don't care how few press conferences you've done. You can't expect to say something in earshot of a reporter and not think it might be published. That's why when I get on the phone with sources where we're literally just talking about whatever, there's no interview, they're like, this is off the record, right? I'm like, yeah, because I'm not an asshole. Sorry. But, you know, like people still have to ask, like, come on, you know? Yeah. And I think that speaks to being new in front of the media. But it's not like he said, you know, next week when we play so-and-so, we're going to run this play. I've been practicing it all week. If that were the case, I could understand, you know, we got to keep that buttoned up. That can't get out. And if you publish that, yeah, you're going to have your access revoked. But this, it reflects so well upon the player. And, yeah, and then it reflects, cute. Yeah, it reflects so poorly upon uh, USC and, and Lincoln Riley. And and there were rumors that he kind of had the, the Norman media locked down. It's obviously a smaller place and a smaller town. So Oklahoma football is really like one of the few things going there. So I can understand if you have a little more control. But this is Los Angeles, man. You got to you got to adapt. Besides like the constitutional arguments here of like, like freedom of the press, restricting access to the press, this is ridiculous. Uh, my favorite reaction to this whole thing as I was like watching everything unfold on Twitter was was Chip Kelly's interview. And this first thing was like, his first thing was, can can someone do that? Can you, can I, he's, he was like, now he's thinking, he's like, can I stop a reporter from coming in? <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? Like, this is ridiculous. Well, yeah. And, and the other thing that, and this is like what I tweeted about that people got very upset. Everyone's very upset. You know, friend of friend of the podcast, AJ Perez um, slacked me the other day and said that I deserved hazard pay for dealing with college football fans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I basically, I basically was like, I don't think the, the non-journalists in the industry understand how little access we have to these players to begin with. There are such strict rules, right? It's like, you wouldn't know this unless you were an athlete or a journalist or an SID, right? You cannot talk to the media without the consent of your athletic department. The media cannot even ask you one-on-one. -on -one. They have to go, even if I have a kid's phone number or I am DMing them on Twitter, a lot of times I'll say to them, hey, I'd love to chat with you about this for an interview, but I'm assuming I have to email your athletic department person first. And they're like, yeah, go email. Okay. You know, 
And the reason that we do that, and one of the first things I was told on this beat was you will be blacklisted if you speak to an athlete and publish quotes for during an interview that was not approved by an SID. That's crazy. Okay. That policy is crazy. I'm on the record as saying it. I don't care how young these kids are. All it does is control the narrative in their handbooks that have been FOIA'd and publicized. They talk about, you're only allowed to talk about positive things and keep, you know, don't air out the athletic department's dirty laundry. And they're also threatened if they want to talk to the media. There's so, you know, and, and I would argue that there is way more harm in keeping these athletes quiet than good, because yes, they say stupid things. We all say stupid things at all ages, literally any age, you can say a stupid thing publicly and it could be a problem for you. So I don't believe in that argument that, oh, we need to protect them. No, you're not protecting them. You're controlling them. Amanda Kristovich, front office sports. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, if you want to find Amanda on Twitter, it's at A Kristovich, two H's. And I'm usually not as spicy as I just was just saying on Twitter. Sometimes I am, most of the time I'm not. That's why you come on here. You have fun with us. Thanks again to Amanda Kristovich. That's A Kristovich two H's on Twitter. That interview and this show, as always, brought to you by Themis Bar Review. Imagine having your very own legal mentor by your side throughout law school. Well, with Themis Bar Review, you have access to one-on-one personalized guidance from a licensed attorney who helps monitor your progress throughout your bar exam journey. In addition, you can keep your busy study schedule on track with assignments that adapt based on your performance and progress when you use their adaptive calendar and study pacer. You also have a dedicated essay grader who provides personalized feedback on your essay structure, legal knowledge, and factual analysis. So level up your game and choose Themis Bar Review. Enroll with Themis before September 30th and save up to $1,100. Wow, $1,100, that's a spicy meatball on your Bar Review course and use code CONDUCTFALL23, CONDUCTFALL23 to get an extra $100 off. Themis Bar Review, best bar review company in the galaxy. And now here's a word from our sponsor at Spotify. Now it's time for all of our favorite segment, What to Watch For. Holly? My What to Watch For, a little bit in the future, but something that kind of broke this past week is Fox Sports is looking to start their own basketball tournament. This basketball tournament will be available to basketball teams who are not participating in the NCAA tournament. Maybe next year, I guess we'll see how quick they can get it running. But the big point that I thought was very interesting is that Fox Sports is going to use their corporate sponsorships to try and convince those sponsors to make NIL deals specifically with the athletes that are on these teams and potentially avoid making deals with athletes who are on the teams that go to March Madness. So very interesting, could be very beneficial for athletes who do not go to March Madness, also could be detrimental for those that do. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much Fox leans on their corporate partnerships there uh, to to make this a success. Mike, what do you got? I'll stick with the 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 big topic for today that w- we will definitely cover next week is the uh, the federal NIL hearing today. Uh, the hearing on whether or not there will be a federal NIL bill. I'm curious to see how this plays out. It, it was interesting again to see legislators kind of 
I don't know, not really being knowledgeable about this and just asking kind of vague questions uh, about the the general nature. I mean, NIL has been around now for over two years and and it doesn't seem to really be setting in on what it is and what they can do to actually make a, an effective NIL bill. But uh, we'll see moving forward. Yeah, no one ever accused Congress of being particularly smart. It was cool to see a friend of the show, Maddie Salamone, uh, testifying there. She was fantastic on our show and we'll hope to have her back in the future. My what to watch for, there's a lot of stadium news. The Tampa Bay Rays released a plan to build a $1.3 billion ballpark, which is in the same exact location that they said is the reason that no one wants to come to the trop. But in more personal uh, stadium news, uh, House Oversight Committee on Wednesday voted 31 to 9 to advance a bill that allows for a 99-year lease on the land where RFK Stadium is. I am, you know, obviously a huge Commanders fan, and um, the possibility of them moving back into the city would be massive. I think it, it would really be a, a game changer for the franchise, and that location is uh, is awesome. So hopefully the team uh, agrees to pony up the money to build a stadium there, and they can reach a deal with the federal government to to make that happen. Also, they're 2-0 for the first time in 10 years. I'm, I'm pumped. Holly, do you have one one more? Yeah, I just wanted to say a big what to watch for, uh, kind of just going forward and what's been happening recently is there is a House hearing tomorrow on one of the motions that was presented, but it is interesting to see how that will play out, what will happen with that. That's obviously the case we're talking about, again, employees or students becoming employees of their schools. So it's interesting to see, depending on how the judge rules on that tomorrow, that either means that the students have a good claim that they can be considered employees of their schools, or if it's denied, the motion's denied, it kind of gets us back to square one. It's great news. The I, world I, of sports law never sleeps. What do you got, Mike? I've got another one, uh, just because I saw it pop up, and uh, this is not this is not college sports, but this is pro sports, uh, but it's uh, something near and dear to, to my heart, I've spoken about it a lot, and Taryn, you as well, is the federal antitrust uh, exemption for Major League Baseball. Uh, we've hit the 101-year anniversary of uh, federal baseball and the uh, antitrust exemption that Major League Baseball has been hiding under for 101 years. We now are, are getting closer to the potential for a Supreme Court to grant cert for the minor league baseball teams that are filing an antitrust uh, law that had filed an antitrust lawsuit, uh, it was, you know, pushed through the Southern District of New York and the Second Circuit. And now we are looking towards the Supreme Court granting cert. So look to the uh, amicus briefs flowing in now uh, in support of uh, overturning federal baseball and the antitrust exemption. But another thing to watch for. Absolutely. And yeah, the world of sports law and never stops. We are so lucky to be able to do this. Thank you so much for listening. For myself, Taryn Sharma, Mike Lawson, Holly Summers, uh, and the entire Conduct Detrimental team, the Dans. Appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Thanks.